Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 16. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant called Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. This is the word of the Lord. This week I was told by a couple of my sisters that this this week was the anniversary of my mom's passing away two years ago. Um, This week as I was thinking about my mom and about that event a couple of years ago and period of time she went through. As many of you know, my mom suffered a, a very severe stroke years ago that caused severe brain damage, um, caused her to be bedridden. And then later in that same year, she had a very rare reaction to medication that um, had a significant impact upon her, and she ended up in what's called a minimally conscious state. And so she was bedridden for several years, uh, couldn't communicate, couldn't care for herself in any way, uh, really was just um, trapped in this prison of a body for years. 
during that time when I would go visit her, I can think a few times in my life that I felt more helpless or powerless to be sitting in bed beside this woman who had, who had all through my life loved me well, been a source of wisdom, a source of laughter, had really been kind of the heart of our home uh, growing up. It was, just, it was just such a helpless feeling to sit beside her bed and see this woman now trapped in this body, unresponsive, unable to communicate in any way, unable to um, show this love and affection that she had always shown, celebrate the things she'd always celebrated. It was really a helpless time that I would sit there. To be honest, I kind of hated going to do it. I kind of hated to go sit beside her bed because it was just such a powerless feeling to change anything. But I would say during that time, during those visits and, and those years um, that she was in that state, I would say that was a time where some things changed in my prayer life. There's something about sitting there in that sense of powerlessness and helplessness that you really do suddenly feel like prayer is the one thing I can do. Prayer is the one meaningful tool that I had uh, to deal with this situation. And, and during those years, I'd say I probably prayed for my mom every single day. Uh, when I was with her, it was the one time if I would hold her hand and pray for her, it's the one time I would see a little bit of emotional response. When I would pray out loud for her, she would always cry, always. Even though she couldn't speak and little response, she would always cry when she'd hear me pray for her. It was the one thing I knew I could do. My prayers were often that God would heal her, God would raise her up out of that state, or that God would take her home. But also my prayers were always that in there, in this place that I can't see what's going on and don't know what's going on within her, that God is there, that God is there with her, comforting her, keeping her company, celebrating even with her, laughing with her, uh, helping her to in some ways experience life in that state. As I came to this passage this week, the reason I was thinking a lot about that was because I, I thought this is a group of people that must have felt pretty helpless and powerless, this story that we read. Um, they were in some pretty tough times. The church, this is only about 10 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So the church had a pretty strong start, the New Testament church. So Jesus is with the apostles and with these disciples, teaching them after his resurrection and giving them their marching orders, and then his ascension into heaven. And then you know the, the great and powerful start of the church. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. These miraculous and powerful events going on in the New Testament church. Um, Hundreds, even thousands of people coming to know Christ every day. Just waves of people coming to Christ. It was a pretty powerful start. Wonderful things happening, exciting things happening in this church in Jerusalem. But pretty quickly also persecution became part of the story. And pretty early in the book of Acts, we know that Stephen, one of their leaders, was stoned. And it says after his stoning that the persecution of the church really kind of ramped up. Everything got a lot tougher. And we know that uh, people began to scatter. They began to leave the church in Jerusalem and scattered to other areas. The good news was they took the gospel with them. The bad news, though, is they had to do it because of pretty difficult times. They had to leave friends and family and possessions behind, and they had to flee for their lives often. It's a time when we know Saul, before his conversion, was working for the leaders of the, of the, church, of the Jews, and he was out there pulling people out of their homes, going house to house, having people in prison because they were Christians, sometimes having them put to death. But then as the story goes on, we know of Paul's conversion. So Paul becomes one of those people that he used to be persecuting, and his persecution stops. But then we come to chapter 12, and, and Herod, in this story, picks that baton up, and the persecution begins again. 
And it, it goes hard this time. So who is this Herod? There are several Herods in the New Testament. It gets a little confusing. The Herods were a family, a, a dynasty that ruled over the area of Israel for several decades. And so there were several Herods from this family that led. Herod the Great's the first one we hear about, and he was a real tyrant, powerful man, but a real tyrant. Um, he's the one that we read about where the wise men came to him early in the Gospels, and then he ordered the death of boys under two uh, in the town of Bethlehem in hope of killing baby Jesus. And then we'll hear about his son a little later, Herod Antipas. Herod is the one who Jesus came before and is this sham of a trial that he was put through. It was that Herod. He's also the one that had John the Baptist put to death. And then as we get to chapter 12, we hear here about Herod Agrippa. And a little later in the book of Acts, we'll hear about his son, Agrippa II. Um, Herod Agrippa was the nephew of Herod Antipas, again, the one that Jesus appeared before. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. And he's a guy who was born into some conflict because Herod the Great, again, kind of a tyrant, actually put a couple of his sons to death, murdered a couple of his sons. He murdered some wives, murdered a lot of family members. Seemed to be a trend with him. So early in his life, Herod Antipas' father was murdered, and then his grandfather sent him to Rome to be educated after he murdered his father. But while in Rome, he was in a pretty good situation, and he was actually in class and being educated with some children of the imperial Roman family. So he made friends with them. As he grew older, he became quite the playboy um, and got in trouble with creditors. And so he eventually fled Rome, went off somewhere else to live to get away from trouble. And while he was there, he had to live under a pretty humble stipend by his, his uncle Antipas. He was giving him a little bit to live on, but wasn't giving him much. So he didn't like that too well. So living in that situation, as soon as things settled down in Rome, he headed back to Rome again. Got himself in trouble in Rome again, though. Made a few comments about the emperor at the time. Wasn't too happy about that. Threw a grip into prison. But while he was in prison, Tiberius, the emperor at the time, died. And guess who came into power then as the new emperor? Caligula, one of his childhood friends, one of his classmates. So he had Agrippa released from prison. And he sent him back to the area of Israel, and he put him in leadership over a few of the Roman provinces there. And then when Caligula died, Claudius came into power, another one of his childhood friends. And so when Claudius came into power, he was given rule over all of Judea and Samaria. He became the king of Judea and Samaria. I tell you all this about Agrippa, this Agrippa in the story in Acts 12, just to say, this is a guy who learned the hard way how to become quite the politician. This is a guy who learned how to play the game uh, through a lot of his mistakes and through a lot of difficult situations he was in. He knew the danger of having people in power against him, and he knew how to be careful about that. He knew, also knew the advantage of having friends in right places, so he knew how to take advantage of that also. So now he is the king, the ruler over Judea and Samaria, and so he's ruling these Jewish people, and he would love to have them on his side, right? But he also rules at the pleasure of Rome, wants them on his side. And those two groups don't always get along so well. We're told actually of Herod Agrippa that he, he was probably the most uh, liked, the most loved even of the Herods. People really liked him. He knew how to play the game well. He knew how to make the Jewish people and the Jewish leadership get along with him and like him, celebrate him. 
But he also was in good favor with Rome. And he worked hard to stay in that position. So I, I say, I say, I think when he came to this situation of dealing with the Christians, this must have been a situation he was excited about. Because finally he has a cause that the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people are going to celebrate him for. He's going to be fighting their enemy. But also Rome, if there's one thing Rome did not tolerate when it came to its outlying provinces, it did not tolerate groups that brought any kind of instability. Do what you want to do. Just don't shake things up in any way. And the Christians were becoming known for that. So by attacking the Christians, this guy, perfect little political cause. I get everybody on my side by doing this. So he he runs, takes kind of a test run. So his first test run is he arrests several of the Christians and along with them, one of their leaders, James, one of the apostles. And he has James go through a kind of mock trial and has him murdered. In fact, we're told he kills him by the sword, which probably means he was beheaded publicly. Uh, We know that beheading in that time was a was a punishment that was a form of execution that was reserved for really kind of the worst of the worst, for the murderers or for the extreme blasphemers. So again, he really makes a point of it. He he has James murdered. And then he finds out Jewish people liked it, just what he expected. They celebrated it. This was great. And so now emboldened by that, he goes out and arrests the real leader of the church, kind of that guy at the top, Peter. He's going to start from the top down. Arrests many Christians, but also Peter... But he arrests him during this period of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this was a time, according to Jewish law, when you couldn't have trials and you couldn't execute. So he arrests him during that time, but he's going to wait until the end of that feast, which ran seven days. He's going to wait to the end of it, and then he's going to have his trial and probably going to execute him just as he did James. Dr. Luke, telling us this story, uh, goes into great detail to tell us that Herod wanted to make sure Peter was going to be there when that time for the trial came, right? So he has four little shifts of guards, four guards in each shift, and they're going to rotate and they're going to keep a close eye on Peter when he imprisons him. Matter of fact, goes into detail, tell us he's going to be chained to two guards 24 hours a day. He's going to be chained to him. We know from writings that time that was unusual. At most, they might chain someone to one guard to have two guards chained to him 24 hours a day. That's a strange thing. Maybe he's heard the stories of that tomb that was found empty the next day. He's not going to let that happen for him. He's going to make sure when the time comes to execute Peter, Peter's going to be there. He's the one in charge. So he tells us the story. And again, you think about it. This has got to be a tough situation for the people of this early church in Jerusalem. This church that had such a great beginning. Now they're so much smaller. People have left. They've scattered everywhere. They've taken off. Now we have James, this this one who was one of the Jesus called him the sons of thunder, James, the brother of John. I mean, this man who was bold and courageous must have been quite a leader in the New Testament church. He's been beheaded publicly, the first apostle to be executed. Now, Peter, our great leader, the one we've depended upon so much, and we expect the same thing's going to happen to him in a few days. This must have been a pretty tough time for these people. Again, knowing that they're probably going to be arrested soon that the same fate may be awaiting them. Very, very difficult time. So what do they do? In this helpless, powerless state, what do they do? Acts chapter 12 and verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Earnestly. It's a word that literally means stretched out. 
And probably the idea here is a picture of people with their arms stretched out, their, their faces down before God, fervently bringing their supplications before God, asking him to intervene. These are people who desperately wanted God to step in and to save Peter and to rescue him. So Dr. Luke in this story has set the stage for us now. On the one side, you have Herod and you have his soldiers and you have their weapons and you have the prison walls. And on the other side, you have the Christians and prayer. That's it. Looks like an unfair fight. All right. One thing we know from Scripture is God seems to love unfair fights. Seems to love that setup. And this is clearly one. This is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament because as it goes on, it kind of takes a little bit of a humorous turn. It's a pretty dark story, but at the same time, a little bit of humor, I think, woven into it as the story is told. So the night before Peter is to be taken out in public and tried and executed, we're told that an angel shows up in his cell that night in a bright light uh, as he shows up, and Peter sleeps on. This guy must have been a good, good sleeper. Night before he's going to be executed, he is, I can never sleep. This guy, next day he's going to be executed, and he's sound asleep, bright light in his cell, he's still asleep. Angel has to slap this guy on the side to get him up. I mean, he's so out of it, he has to tell him to get dressed. He has to keep walking him through how to get dressed, right? And then he walks him past these guards undetected, walks him out of the cell, the chains all fall off, takes him out, and these iron gates just automatically open before him. Not a common occurrence. This is a day of grocery store doors that do this, right? This is doors open automatically in front of him, walk him down the street, and as he gets down the street, the angel suddenly just disappears. And then, it's kind of funny in the story, then it kind of dawns on him. You know what? I think I think this really happened. Uh, I think, matter of fact, I think God did something here. God rescued me. It took him a while to wake up and get it, but I think God actually rescued me. I think that's actually a pretty central s- statement in this story. Because I think in some ways, as Luke is telling the story, what he is driving home in every possible way, there is no question this is a God thing, right? God's the one who did this. This is absolutely his work, his intervention. It's the only reason it's taken place. And Peter gets it. And so Peter then, after he gets it, decides he's going to head over to John Mark's mom's house. And it must have been a a fairly large house where they probably met regularly. And it seems that Peter actually expected the people of the church to be there praying for him. This is where he's going to go in the middle of the night because he expects them to be there. Possibly they've been there for several days praying for him day and night. And he kind of expects that. It's what they do, right? And he goes and he knocks on the door at the outer gate, knocks on the door, and servant girl Rhoda comes out, and she probably asks who it is. And hears his voice, and she's so excited. She just can't wait, and she runs back inside to tell all these disciples, tell all the people of the church who are in there praying day and night, fervently, earnestly praying that Peter would be rescued, right? I mean, putting their lives at risk probably to gather together in that time You're risking your life. These are people who I think were earnest in their prayers. They cared. They believed. And she tells them and they say, you've got to be out of your mind. Peter's not at the door. What a strange thing, isn't it? I really don't think that's strange. Pretty much like us. Praying for it. When the answer comes, it's like, yeah, that's just not possible. There's absolutely no way that's Peter out there. But this is the funniest part of the whole story to me. There's There's no way that Peter's standing at that door. I think it's actually Peter's angel who might be standing at the door. Now, I can't believe that God could have rescued Peter and brought him here, even though we're praying for that. 
but I can't believe there's an angel out here knocking on the door wanting to get in, right? And eventually they go and they, they check at the door and they find out it is Peter. And when he comes in, I'm sure they kind of celebrate and he settles them down. Not a good time to be loud in the middle of the night in the city. Settles them down and he tells them everything that has just happened. Let's them know the story. And then he tells them to pass this on to James. And this James is James, the, the brother of Jesus, who it looks like he's kind of handing the baton off, baton off to now become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then Peter goes away, flees, disappears. And we don't hear about him for a little while. Again, probably because he doesn't want captured again and thrown back in prison, right? Which is interesting even in that, that Peter didn't necessarily expect that every time I get thrown in prison, I'm going to get let out, right? He, he, he knows I still need to kind of work, take care of myself. God has intervened, but it isn't that I can necessarily plan on that every single time. I still need to make choices that I need to make to, to be safe if I can. The story goes on in Acts, Luke continues the story. And as the story goes on, we find out the next day that Herod finds out about Peter being gone, questions the guards, and he has all the guards executed for letting Peter escape. And then a little later in the story, we're told that Herod goes to the area of Caesarea. And in Caesarea, he is there to make a speech and uh, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that when Herod comes out, he's wearing this silver robe that, that reflects light, I guess. And so when he comes out to make this speech, it's a sunny day, and, he, and Josephus says he's literally glowing in the sun. And then he must give this really a remarkable speech. Because as the people hear the speech, uh, they say this about it. This is the voice of God, not a man. Boy, Herod must have felt good. Finally, he's, he's in the place he wants to be. The people are literally worshiping his, him as God. But right after that, in verse 23, we're told immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Pretty horrible death. And then Luke ends the story with these ten little words. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Beginning of this story, James is dead, Peter's in prison, Herod's flourishing. End of the story, Herod's dead, Peter's free, and the word of God is flourishing. Chuck Colson wrote this. The Bible, banned, burned, beloved, more widely read, more frequently attacked than any other book in history. Generations of intellectuals have attempted to discredit it, Dictators of every age have outlawed it and executed those who read it. Yet soldiers carried into battle, believing it more powerful than their weapons. Fragments of it smuggled into solitary prison cells have transformed ruthless killers into gentle saints. The moral of the story, kings and emperors may come and go, but the word of God continues to flourish forever and ever. Now, most of us may not face in our lifetime threats to our life because of following Jesus. But we do know that right now around the world, there are people in that state, right? People who literally are facing threats through their life because they follow Jesus. But we do, even here, we do face what Colson talks about, generations of intellectuals who attempt to discredit our beliefs. We know what it is to face voices that are looking for ways to, to define us as narrow or as bigoted or as outdated in all our beliefs and morals. 
we know what it is to face challenges, at least. Many know what it is to face real dangerous threats. And in the face of all that, it just seems so small and insignificant to turn to prayer sometimes. When the threats are that big, when the things are so, uh, just seem overwhelming in front of us, when we feel so helpless to do anything, sometimes it's hard to believe that prayer could be enough to really make a difference in the face of something that big, in the face of things that powerful. But that's the story of Acts 12. As a church, I know sometimes we are, it's just hard for us to, to really act on prayer, to really, when we're in the face of the things we really want to see accomplished, the big things we want to see happen, it's, it's hard to, to really grab hold of and believe prayer is kind of the foundation of how those things are going to change. As a church, if we call you guys here to, to act, to get up and volunteer your time and to do something, I think this is a remarkable church in responding to those requests. Uh, this week, I, I mean, so many have signed up to go work on the Habitat House, you know. You guys volunteering to go out in the cold this week, and it's probably going to be cold this week, volunteering to go out and work to help build a house for somebody you don't even know. And the church is just wonderful about responding to those kind of requests. When we have requests about giving financially to a need, uh, this church is remarkable about doing that. I just love the story of the flicks here recently and the way the church has stepped up and responded to that. This church is so quick to step in and to give their resources, to give their time to need, because we believe we can make a difference for Christ, right? That we can join him in the good work he's doing by giving of our time and our efforts and our possessions. But if we call people together to pray for something... It's a little harder to get a group together. That's a little tougher to do. And we have praying people here. I don't, I don't mean we don't. But that's a little harder to get a group to, get, to respond to, to get a group to come together and do. And I think it's because we have a real hard time believing that that is really significant. That will really make a difference. I think Acts chapter 12 is trying to remind us in this story, it makes a difference. It absolutely is one of the most important things that we can do. Throughout the book of Acts, uh, prayer is spoken of often. In fact, there's references to prayer 31 times in the book of Acts. Uh, prayer precedes almost every significant event that took place in the book of Acts. In this establishing and founding and flourishing of the New Testament church, prayer is woven all through it. And again and again, it's not just individual prayer. It's people gathering together to pray as a community. It's central to this story. It's foundational to it. And we say that was wonderful for then, but is that true now? Recently, I was reading Richard Foster's book on prayer. And in it, he tells the story of Myung Sung Presbyterian Church in Seoul, South Korea. At the time of the writing of this book, he said every single morning at this church, 12,000 people assemble together for prayer every single morning. Groups meet at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m. every morning to pray. An hour of prayer together. Uh, this church that was started in 1980 is now the largest Presbyterian church in the world. And if you go to their website even today and you read, they'll tell you that this is still part of what they do. It's common practice there. But they'll tell you it's really not that unique to them, that actually all across South Korea, that it's common for Christian churches to have morning prayer times to gather together and pray. So maybe not so strange that South Korea has seen some of the greatest growth of the Christian church of anywhere in the world in recent decades. Because prayer is at the center of what they do. One of the things I love in this story, maybe another application of the story, is not only that we should pray, 
But another application is that sometimes we think, well, do my prayers really matter? Because, you know, am I, am I that good at prayer? Am I the one that has the kind of faith that's needed for prayer? Am I the one that is eloquent enough to be the one who prays? But one of the things I love about this story, these people cared. These people were willing to risk life and limb. These people prayed earnestly uh, for Peter's rescue. But these people also had doubts. These people also wavered sometimes. As, as sincere as they were in their prayers, they wavered also in their belief of whether those prayers would be answered. These were not perfect believers that have perfect faith that their prayers would be answered. Because the real power in our prayer is not in how we pray or in just in us, the prayers. The real power in our prayer is the one to whom we pray. They approached him honestly and sincerely, and they still weren't sure. They had questions just like all of us had. But the power was in him, the one they spoke to. Sometimes we get thinking the power is in some kind of magical thing about the prayer. If you say the prayer just right, if you're just the right kind of prayer, then, then it has to happen, right? The power is in the one to whom they prayed. Because even with this wavering, sometimes doubting, imperfect prayer, God still responded in powerful ways, as he always does. I think one of the greatest obstacles sometimes, though, to us praying, being a praying people, again, is we really wonder if it matters. We really wonder, you know, not does it matter because um, we shouldn't pray, but does it matter because isn't God going to do what he's going to do anyways? Whether we pray or don't pray, why don't we just do what he's going to do? In this story, James was beheaded, right? Peter was rescued. I'm sure they prayed for James too. So isn't, isn't God just going to do what he's going to do whether we pray or not? We can't really tell. Do our prayers really matter? And I think we have good reasons sometimes for the questions because when we go to Scripture, it's a little bit confusing, isn't it? You read many passages like what we read in James chapter 4. You do not have because you do not ask God. Again and again, we are encouraged to come to God and bring our request before him in prayer. But then we read passages like Matthew 6, where Jesus is telling us not to, not to babble like the pagans, not to just say things over and over again, thinking because you say so many words, God's going to somehow come through for you. And he says the reason I shouldn't do this is this. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So if he already knows, why ask him, Right? But then we have a parable in Luke 18 and many passages like this where Jesus tells this parable and he tells them to to pray and to not give up, to be persistent in their prayers because God will respond to those persistent prayers. It's kind of confusing. You know, do our prayers really matter? Do we really need to pray? Won't God just do what he's going to do anyways? I've been teaching this semester a series on prayer and as I've been reading lots of people, Talk about prayer. Lots of theologians try to answer these questions. One of the things that's been strangely encouraging to me is um, they didn't really answer anything for me. Um, They're just as confused as I am, I felt, by the time I was done reading person after person. I felt like they were faced with the same mystery that I'm faced with. But I would say there are at least two things that seem clear in Scripture. One is God tells us to pray. Jesus teaches us to pray. And in those stories where we're told to pray, we're also very much taught that our prayers matter, that God listens to our prayers, that he cares about our prayers, that he's responsive to our prayers, that the God we speak to is a personal God 
who looks at us, knows us, cares about us, and wants us to know him and come to him and share our needs and our desires and, and our thankfulness and our praises with him, this personal God. The other thing that seems clear in Scripture to me is God's a sovereign God. He's a God who's in control. He is all-powerful and he is all-knowing. The God is a God who has a plan and it's a good plan. He has good purposes and nothing is going to thwart that plan or those purposes. The God is not some vending machine that if I just put the right coins in, that I can get him to do whatever I want him to do. He's a God who's in charge, not me. Absolutely believe that of God. He is a God whose responses will always be in tune with his character and his purposes and his plan. I will not get him to step out of that, right? I believe those two things are true. Exactly how those two things fit together is a mystery to me. Sometimes I'm not exactly sure how that all works. But as I thought about it this week, I thought, even though I don't understand it all, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that when I bring requests to God that I lay those requests in the hands of somebody who who understands more than me and knows more than me and is wiser than me, and that his decision will always be based upon that wisdom and that knowledge and that understanding, not just mine. Because to tell you the truth, I've lived with me for 55 years, and I still don't have me figured out. I sure don't have all of you figured out. So when I try to bring needs and requests and desires I'm really not sure I fully even understand what I need sometimes. I sure don't fully understand what all of you need. And I absolutely don't understand the consequences of every choice and every event upon the future. I'm glad that when I bring those requests, someone wiser than me is sorting out how to best meet those needs, that I'm not the only voice. But at the same time, how thankful I am that when I reach out and speak to God, I speak to someone who honestly sees me and cares about me and listens to me. That I have access to the King of Kings, to the creator of the universe, and he pays attention to my voice. What a wonderful thing that is, how thankful I am for that also, that I do speak to a personal God. I don't understand always how they fit together, but I'm thankful for both. I'm thankful that those are both realities of prayer. And when we look at Jesus, we see a perfect example, as always, of what prayer looks like. Just before his crucifixion, we read these words. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is asking his father, who he knows. He is asking him to care about what he's going through. He brings a request to his father because he knows his father is listening to him and cares about his words. But he also lays that request in the Father's hands, trusting that how the Father responds will be according to his good and wise and true will. doesn't want anything other than that. Prayer is our great privilege and our great responsibility. In the face of overwhelming odds, we need not fear because we have God's ear. What a remarkable thing that is. So let's gather together often. We have wonderful opportunities around this church to gather together and pray. Let's use those opportunities. Many people pray every Sunday morning back here for our services. Meet together and do that. We have people Sunday afternoons will pray for our missionaries. Gather together and do that. We have people in small groups and ACGs gathering together and do that. When you fill out your little prayer requests on your bulletin flaps and drop them in the offering plate, the staff gathers together every week and we pray for those requests. 
Uh, we have adoption of foster care ministry that monthly gets together and they pray for those needs. There are groups all over this church getting together and praying. Let's make that a foundation of who we are. What a remarkable privilege it is. And let's end with prayer. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you listen even now, that you are here in our midst, that you hear us and that you care. And Father, we are thankful for the remarkable and powerful things you do in response. In your name, amen.